Our passage for today is 2 Chronicles 33, 1 through 16. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to Baal, and made Asheroth, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery, and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. In the carved image of the idol that he had made, made he said in the house of the Lord, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the laws, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought unto them from the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard him his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and of the entrance into the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army at all the fortified cities in Judah. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good to uh, see all of you that are here in the sanctuary. Those of you that are joining us in our live stream, good to have uh, you here from your living room and breakfast nooks or wherever you find yourself. And then for those of you outside, uh, in our outdoor service, it is good to have you guys as well. We're continuing on in our sermon series, All Things New and the, the Story of the Bible and the Healing of the World. And since January, we've been working our way through the 
single overarching story of the Bible and how the Bible tells the story of the world's healing. And looking from Genesis to Revelation, if you're just joining us, or perhaps you're, you're, you're new to Calvary, new to the series, we are uh, been working our way through the age of the kings. And so this is sort of roughly about the middle of the Bible's story. Reign of the king Manasseh. Manasseh's father, King Hezekiah, was one of Judah's great kings. So he was one of the kings that helped to kind of reset the deck and forestall covenant. Forestall the, uh, the, the curse of the covenant. He was a very great and godly king. But it had been a very windy day when the apple fell from the tree in, in Hezekiah's family. And if you know much about the biblical story, you know that Manasseh was the worst. He was the nadir of the Jewish kings. It was during his reign that the sword dropped. There were a few more kings after Manasseh, but Manasseh was so wicked, he was so profane, you know, he so broke covenant that the final curse of the covenant fell upon Judah during his reign. To exile they would go. But the story of Manasseh isn't only a story of disobedience and wickedness. His story, as told here in 2 Chronicles 33, is a profound story of redemption and restoration, of repentance and deliverance. So that's what we're going to focus on today. I'm going to draw three lessons on repentance from this story of Manasseh. So maybe some of you need to repent this morning. We all do at various points in our lives. Perhaps you have some sin, some besetting sin that you've carried with you here into the service this morning or outside or you're watching online. God is calling you. You know he's been calling you to deal with it. You've been putting him off. Perhaps today is the day the Lord's calling you to repent. Or maybe you've been keeping it between the lines lately and nothing specific comes to mind. I think that could be true for many of us as well. Whatever the case might be, John Calvin, he was the great Protestant reformer. and He described the whole Christian life as a race of repentance. And I think that's a, that's a great way of describing the Christian life. Repentance is the, the foundation and the entry point into the life of faith. So repentance is vital to being a Christian, and Manasseh's example helps us see what true repentance looks like, and then also what it doesn't look like. So as we turn our attention now to 2 Chronicles 33, I want to give us our first lesson that we draw from this passage on repentance in verses 33, 1 through 9. Let's get our first lesson there. Here's the first lesson. Recognize that you are seeking, when we're called to repent, we've got to recognize that we are seeking a legitimate good in a wrong way. We're seeking a legitimate good in a wrong way. So let's see if we can discern this from the passage. So in verse 1, we're told that Manasseh becomes king at 12 years old. He reigns for 55 years. He's the longest reigning king in Judah. But it's not a long and pretty reign. It's a long and wicked one. As I mentioned, he's the mere opposite of Hezekiah, his father. He's as faithless to the covenant as Hezekiah was faithful to the covenant. And 
verses 2 through 9 then provide kind of all the details about Manasseh's wickedness. We read in verse 3 that Manasseh rebuilt the high places. Now, for those of you who are not uh, familiar with high places, these were rogue, sacrificial altars that were built upon high places outside of Jerusalem and through the country of Israel. So upon hilltops, upon mountains, it was deemed you were closer to the gods, and so you would build altars of sacrifice upon these pagan high places or these sacrificial high places, and you would offer sacrifices there. Now sometimes the Lord was worshipped on the high places. So it's not always just sites of pagan idolatry, but but very often, perhaps most often, the pagan gods were worshipped on the high places. So the Lord just outlawed the practice altogether. No high places. Only sacrifices that could be offered could be offered in Jerusalem, in the temple, at the altars of the Lord. This was to control the sacrificial systems and to help uh, get rid of the chances of idolatry. But Manasseh had rebuilt all of the altars of the high places throughout uh, the areas of his reign. And specifically, he rebuilt them not so that God could be worshipped round and about, but so that the pagan gods could be worshipped. He wanted to bring back paganism. And so he rebuilt the high places to make more opportunities for pagan sacrifices. But pagan sacrifices on the high places were the least of the problems because Manasseh, we go on to read, brought the pagan sacrifices into the temple itself. So he built the altars to the Baals. The Baals were the, the pagan gods of the area, to Asheroth, some of the more pagan gods. And he worshipped the many gods of the heavens. So the, the, the various stars of the heavens would be named and they, they would symbolize or uh, speak of pagan gods. And so, so uh, Manasseh has brought this pagan sacrificial system into the temple itself. And he has instituted and built altars in the temples, in the temple to sacrifice to the pagan gods. Verse 6 goes on to tell us that Manasseh's idolatry was so bad that it even involved human sacrifice. He went so far as to offer his own sons as sacrifices to the pagan gods. There was no sacrifice more esteemed, more uh, worthy to give to a god than to give one's own flesh and blood. And so the pagan gods called for this sacrifice. And Manasseh honors the pagan gods by offering his sons in the fire. It's a practice that is so vile that God condemns it in the strongest terms in the prophetic writings. Verse 6 goes on to say that Manasseh was into the occult, fortune-telling, sorcery, mediums, necromancers. He's a regular Bellatrix Lestrange, if you are a Harry Potter fan out there, right? So he is into all sorts of wickedness. The parallel passage in 2 Kings, so 1 and 2 Kings tells a lot of the same stories that we get in 1 and 2 Chronicles, and the parallel passage in 1 and 2 Kings from 2 Kings 21 tells us that Manasseh filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. So perhaps he was the, the author of 2 Kings was referring to these, these child sacrifices that not only Manasseh performed, but probably invited everyone in Jerusalem to perform as well. But maybe he was also referring to something just as sinister. We're thinking of, if you know the story of Nero, he was the, 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 the great evil Roman emperor who just killed so many people to protect his own reign, even his own mother and his own family members. 
Whatever the case might be, we get a summary in verse 9 of Manasseh's reign. So look here in verse 9. The chronicler gives us this summary. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. As bad as the Canaanites had been, and if you can go back, if you've been with us in the sermon series, you go back a number of sermons, we talked about the, the destruction of Canaan because of the wickedness of the Canaanites. As bad as the Canaanites had been, Manasseh was worse. In short, he was pretty rotten. Well, let's pause here just a moment and consider what drove all of this rottenness. Why did Manasseh pursue the occult and worship the pagan gods, even to the point of sacrificing his own sons? Well, why did anyone in those days worship and sacrifice to the pagan gods? In the ancient world, People sacrificed to the pagan gods and honored them because they believed that the gods would help them. They believed that the gods would help them prosper. In other words, people sacrificed to the pagan gods for the same reasons that the Jews sacrificed to the Jewish god. Because both the pagans and the Jews believed that such sacrifices would secure a blessing. Indeed, Manasseh, in his pagan idolatry, now catch this, the irony of this, Manasseh, in his pagan idolatry, was seeking all the blessings that God had promised to Judah in the, under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. Manasseh was seeking peace, safety, prosperity, victory, bounty, wealth. He was seeking all of these things through his sacrifices to the pagan gods, and all of these things are what God had promised to the Jewish kings if they would be faithful to the covenant and worship God. Manasseh's problem wasn't that he was pursuing wrong things. His problem was that he was pursuing the right things by the wrong means. This is the source of his idolatry. It's the source of his sin. And here's the point that I want to make, that I want us to see as it relates to sin and repentance. Sin is not pursuing evil things, but pursuing good things in evil ways. That's what sin is. It's not when we pursue evil things, it's when we pursue good things in evil ways. Now, if that's a new thought, take a moment to reflect just a little bit on that. Like I want us to just kind of sit with that, wrestle with that just a little bit. Sin is not pursuing evil things, but pursuing good things in evil ways. Christian theologians, this is in the history of Christianity, but all the way back from the days of Augustine in the 4th century to Aquinas in the Middle Ages, all the way to more modern evangelical favorites like C.S. Lewis and G.L. Heastan, have all maintained that no one pursues evil as an end in and of itself. We always and only are seeking after good. Everything we're doing is to pursue the good. The problem arises when we don't always have a clear vision for how to acquire these goods. Right? We're, we're, we're very often wrong about how to get the goods. That's where the problem emerges. Right? This is 
Parenting 101, of course, if you've been a parent. We all know, even if you haven't been a parent, we all know about kids who throw tantrums. The kid who throws a tantrum isn't throwing a tantrum because he likes tantrums. Right? That's not what's driving his tantrum. He's throwing a tantrum because he craves the attention of his parents. And bad attention is better than no attention. What he wants is a legitimate good. He wants attention from his mom and dad. That's what he wants. And there's no shame in that. It's a good and honest desire. But he doesn't know how to get it the right way, and so he unconsciously seeks after it in the wrong way, to the ruin and misery of the whole family. And such is the story of our lives. When we sin, we're all just adult children throwing adult tantrums. We're seeking after the right things in the wrong ways. And here's the deep and profound and tragic irony of our sin. It is our desire to possess the good that drives our sinful actions. It's our legitimate desire to possess the good that leads to our sinful actions. Our parenting sins, our workplace sins, our marriage sins, our friendship sins, all happen because we are engaging in illegitimate efforts to secure a legitimate good. So if you're looking at pornography, it's not because you like smut in and of itself. It's because you love beauty and power, beauty and strength, or perhaps because you long desperately for intimacy, or because you want to feel alive, or because you want to be affirmed in the deepest part of your soul, or likely it's a combination of all of the above. Those are all legitimate goods, but you're trying to find them in the wrong way. Or perhaps you're a wife that criticizes and nags your husband. It's not that you like relational discord and enjoy criticizing people. That's an end in and of itself. It's because you long to be loved and cared for and respected. You want to be seen and heard and you're fighting desperately to be valued and cherished. The desire to be loved and to be cherished is a legitimate good. It's a legitimate godly desire. But you're trying to find it in a misguided and wrong way. And the more desperately and tenaciously and wickedly we cling to an evil practice, the more that reveals how desperately we are seeking for the good. Why does a man hold so tightly to his pornography? Because he really, really wants to be loved and affirmed. Why does a wife nag so bitterly? It's because she really, really wants to be loved and cared for. And it's so easy, especially for the more pious among us, to simply dismiss our sinful actions as nothing but evil. We just think of our sinful actions, and we just know we need to quit that. We just, we just want to dismiss all of it. But not everything, not everything about our sinful actions are evil. Just like the fit-throwing child is pursuing the good of his parents' attention, we in our sinful Adult tantrums are pursuing something good, too. So what good thing are you chasing after in an illegitimate way this morning? Just like Manasseh, you, you want something that God has even promised to the world, but you're pursuing it in some illegitimate way. What 
Is the good thing that you are chasing after this morning in an illegitimate way? Or maybe a way to think about this is to say, where am I acting illegitimately? Where do I keep falling into patterns of sin? And then in that place, to ask yourself, what good am I seeking in that? Why do I keep coming back thinking that there's going to be a good or a blessing? What blessing am I seeking on the other side of those actions? Likely, likely you're going to need to really ponder that. And pray about that. I can't answer that question for everybody here. It's, not, it's going to take a little bit of, of prayer and thought. Talk it through with a friend or a counselor or a pastor. You're going to need to probably spend some time pondering this. I encourage you to do so. Don't just run past this. Spend some time thinking about what it is that you are seeking, especially if you're stuck in a pattern of sin. If you keep getting tripped up in a pattern of sin, then don't just rush to try to like get rid of the pattern of sin. Ask yourself, what good am I seeking here? Because until you come to grips with and understand the true good that you are seeking, you will likely not be able to repent of your fit throwing. You're going to keep... Keep trying to quit throwing a fit. You're not going to be able to do it because you're going to just keep coming back because it's the, it's the only thing you can think of to do. You've got to know what good you're seeking. So the first lesson from Manasseh regarding repentance is recognize that you are seeking a legitimate good in an, in an illegitimate way. All right, here's the second lesson on repentance. So we can get this from 10 uh, through verses 10 through 13. Second lesson on repentance is despair of the efficacy of of your sin. You've got to despair of the efficacy of your sin. So verse 10 tells us that the Lord spoke to Manasseh and warned him that he would not find the blessing that he was seeking by going into his pagan gods, but Manasseh pays no attention, and sure enough, the pagan gods do not deliver Manasseh, and he is taken into captivity. Now, what the details are, he's taken captive by the Assyrians, and he's led from Jerusalem like a beast in chains. He, they would put a hook in the nose and they would lead you. That's how you could lead an ox, right? So they're treating you like a, like a pack animal. They would put a hook in your nose and lead you out as a way to shame you. And on his way to meet his fate, which he has every reason to believe, is going to be humiliation and death. Verse 12 tells us that he was in distress. And in his distress... He entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. So when Manasseh, what does Manasseh do? To whom does Manasseh pray when the pagan house of cards comes falling to the ground? He prays to the God of his people, to the God of his fathers. He had been trying to find blessing apart from God, but that had failed utterly. The pagan gods had not delivered him, and now he has repented of that futile effort. He has turned his allegiance away from the pagan gods and has thrown himself fully on the mercy of the God of the covenant. When he gives up on the pagan gods, it isn't that he gives up on seeking the good. This is, this is why you got to know the good you're seeking. He hasn't given up on seeking the good. He's still seeking the good. He still desires peace, safety, prosperity, victory, bounty. He still wants blessing. 
But now, on his way to Babylon, he sees how foolish he had been to look for those blessings apart from God. He hasn't repented of pursuing the good. He has repented of pursuing the good through the wrong means. Listen, because the wrong means had failed him. That's a decisive thing in repentance. You have to despair of the efficacy of your sin. It cannot deliver you. And that's the second principle on repentance. We repent of our sinful practices when we despair of the efficacy of those sinful practices, when we lose all hope in the pagan gods. Whatever your version of the pagan gods is, you have to despair of them delivering you, just like Manasseh did. It's a couple here at church, and I won't mention their names. Many of you uh, would know them, but to know them now, you would think they've been Christians their whole life. They're such a mature, godly couple. But at one point in, in their marriage, in years past, they both had been alcoholics. And someone asked the wife, well, how, did you, like, how did you break free? What happened that you got free from your alcohol? And she said, one day I just realized that like, the alcohol didn't work anymore. Like It just wasn't working. I'm looking to it for happiness, looking for it to like calm my pain, looking to it for a good thing, right? but it wasn't delivering the good thing. And she just finally realized this is a futile effort. And in her heart, in a, in a God-given way, she saw the futility of her alcoholism. We give up on our sinful practices when we despair of them working. We have to despair of them working. You think that drink will make you happy, and it does for about six hours, and then it doesn't. You think that pornography will make you happy, and it does for about 15 minutes, and then it doesn't. You think that backstabbing and crushing the opposition to get to the top at work will make you happy, except that you've worked your way to the top, and you're still not happy. At some point, in order to repent, we must come to terms with the fact that our sinful practices will never deliver us into happiness. So this morning, if what you've been doing isn't working, then it's time to come to terms with not only the wrongness of your sin, but even more deeply, the futility of your sin. That's the point I really feel burdened to make. It's not just that sin is wrong. It's futile. It can't give us what we are seeking. God has designated certain actions as sinful precisely because those actions don't work. If sinful actions could really truly bring flourishing and blessing, if they could really usher you into the wholeness of life, then God would not have designated those actions as sinful. God's not trying to rob us of things just because it happens to be immoral. It happens to be immoral because it robs us of things. And so he's wanting to lead us into the path of blessing. As my old pastor used to say, when God says don't, he's saying don't hurt yourself. That's why he makes things sinful. Are there any sinful actions or patterns that you need to despair of this morning? You're not going to repent of them until you've despaired of them. You have to believe that they cannot help you. Things that you've been trying, perhaps, that simply aren't working, don't double down on them. They aren't ever going to work. 
Give up thinking that sin works. It doesn't work. Maybe for a moment, maybe for a season, maybe it brings temporary relief, but not over the long term. God knows best, and in His wisdom and in His love, He has told us how to live. So the first lesson from Manasseh on repentance, recognize that you are seeking a legitimate good in an illegitimate way. Second lesson, despair of the efficacy of your sin. Tantrum throwing will never get you what you are seeking. And then finally, the third lesson here, cast your hope fully on God. Look at verse 13 or 14. Verse 13, Manasseh cries out to God, God hears him, and God restores him to his throne in Jerusalem. God could have thrown the book at Manasseh, but God is a gracious judge. And his dealings with Manasseh are exactly in keeping what we saw in Solomon's prayer back in 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon predicted that this moment would come, that the judgment of God would fall, and that when the judgment of, when the judgment of God fell, that Israel would cry out for relief and repentance, ask for forgiveness, and God would graciously grant it. And here Manasseh, the wickedest of all the Jewish kings, whose wickedness was so profane and so profound that he has brought the final curse of the covenant down upon the nation of Judah. Even in the midst of his judgment, he calls out to God and God forgives him and heals him and restores him. Verse 13 tells us that when Manasseh repented, God delivered him, but then look at what Manasseh does in verses 14 through 16. When he gets back to Jerusalem, it's not just life as usual. He goes all in on the God of the covenant. He builds up the walls of the city, takes away the foreign gods and idols from the house of the Lord. He throws all of the pagan altars that he had built outside of the city like so much trash. He repairs the altar of the Lord that he had neglected in the temple. He commands the whole country to serve and honor God. There are no half measures. He casts himself headlong into the arms of God. He doesn't hang on to Baal while repenting of Asherah. He cleanses the whole temple. Metaphorically and literally, he cleanses everything. And there's a lesson for us in that. When we repent, we have to cast our hope fully onto God. If we have despaired of our pagan resources in one area of our life, but then determined to call out to God for his help, that's well and good, right? Well and good. But we must put the whole of our lives into God's care. And sometimes that's the biggest challenge of repentance. That can be very difficult for us to do. Not every sin plagues us all equally, does it? There are some sins that we engage in that just cause us a lot of grief. Right? We just know it's causing us grief. and We, we want to let go of it. We want to repent of it. We want to get rid of that sin because it's, it's harming us and we can see that it's harming us. But there's other sins that we're clinging to that they don't seem to be bothering us that much. In fact, they don't seem to be causing us grief. They seem to be helping us. And so we want to repent of these sins because they're making us miserable, but we want to hang on to these sins because they're bringing some measure of relief. But we must put the whole of our lives into God's care. Repentance doesn't work 
piecemeal. If you want God's help with your drinking problem, you can't keep cheating on your wife. If you want God's help with your marriage problem, you can't keep embezzling funds at work. If you want God's help with your schooling, you can't keep sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend. True repentance. When we come to God in true repentance, we direct the entire orientation of our lives in a Godward direction. True repentance happens when we surrender everything to God's care. Not just the parts of our lives that are bothering us, but the whole of our lives to God's care. If your sinful practices this morning have failed to deliver you, and you need God's help with either your whole life or just a particular area of your life, then surrender everything to Him. It doesn't work to come to Jesus and ask Him to heal the cancer in our kidney, but leave the cancer in our lungs alone. He heals the whole person, or He doesn't heal any of the person. Revelation 3, Jesus, John pictures Jesus coming and standing at the door of our lives, right? Jesus says, I stand at the door and I knock. He wants to come into our home, into our house, into our lives. There's an old book, more of a booklet really, written by Robert Boyd Munger. Maybe you've read it. It's called My Heart, Christ Home. And uh, it was introduced to me when I was in high school. I went back and I looked it up because it reminds me a bit of this point. But short little booklet that runs a parallel of this passage in Revelation 3 where Jesus stands at the door and knocks and wants to come in to the lives, into our homes. And in this pamphlet, the author is eating dinner in his home and knock on the door and opens it up and it's Jesus and the author is so overjoyed and he wants to invite Jesus into his home. But as Jesus comes into his home, he's leading him through the house and showing Jesus the different parts of the house. He realizes that there are certain parts of the home he'd prefer Jesus not actually go into. So each room is kind of a metaphor for different areas of life. So there's the rec room and kind of his life of entertainment. There's the study, which is kind of his life of the mind. And, you know, there's the kitchen, which is life of appetites. And, and so he, he begins to realize as Jesus is kind of turning the house that there are certain parts of the home here that maybe don't fit so well with Jesus. And he begins to try to keep Jesus out of certain parts of the room. Right? And eventually he has to come to grips with the fact that if Jesus is going to be in his home, Jesus has to have free access to every part of his life. And in the end, he releases the house room by room to Jesus until eventually he turns over the whole house, deed and all. He just signs the deed over and gives it over to Christ. It's a beautiful picture, I think, of what Christ wants of our lives. Jesus longs to enter into the house of our lives, not to judge us, not to wag his finger at certain things that he's going to find in our lives. He's not trying to rob us of joy or take away our happiness or our pleasures, but to bring joy, to bring life, to bring peace, to bring health. He wants to bring healing to the home of our lives. What are you clinging to that is getting in the way of your ability to repent? You want to repent of this thing, but you can't because you're holding on to this thing. Maybe you've spent too much time focusing here, and you need to start asking God, like, where else do I need to surrender my life to you so that I can be free of this thing? Whole life repentance is what's required. If you want to ask Jesus to cleanse the temples 
the temple of idols, but to, but to leave the altars. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. He's going to come in and cleanse the temple. He's going to cleanse the whole temple. What would it mean this morning to surrender everything in your life to God? Let me close with this our sermon this morning with the great gospel truth in all of this. If every sin is a misguided seeking after the good, and it is, and if, as Jesus says, there is only one good, God himself, and there is, then every sin is really just a seeking after God. Cut off from the life of God, we are starved to find life again. And in our blindness, we grope around in the dark, seeking for life and hope and love and dignity and peace and purpose. But do you see it here this morning? He himself is the life and the hope and the help and the love and the peace and the purpose that we are seeking. Every good we seek is found in the God who said, let light shine out of darkness and who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the light of life, the river of God, the spring of living water. To have him is to have everything we were created for. That's really what we're seeking. That's what we're clawing around for in our lives. And we muck it up because we go down paths that can't give us that. And we're drinking from the empty wells. But he offers himself freely to those who come to him in faith. Revelation 22, one of the last words of the Apostle John in his great revelation. The Spirit says this, Let he... Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. When we confess the futility of our sin, we repent of trying to find life outside of God. He forgives us and he restores us to the life that is found only in him. So stop trying to drink from the empty well this morning. That will never satisfy your thirst. Repent of that. Instead, seek the good, find the good that you are seeking in the Son of God who unites us to life itself. So recognize you are seeking a legit good in an illegitimate way. That's the first step in repentance. Second, despair of the efficacy of your sin. And finally, cast your hope fully on God. Let's repent this morning of our futile efforts to find happiness worldly or wicked ways, and let's find our happiness and our joy and our life in God himself through his Son. Father, thank you that you have given us Jesus, who is the light and the life of humanity. Forgive us for all the ways that we try to find light and life outside of Christ. We sometimes try to find that and 
ways that only bring ruin in upon ourselves. God, I pray for some, any here this morning listening, that if they have been like Manasseh, chasing after pagan gods, trying to find what you have promised through your son, and they find themselves being led out of Jerusalem, as it were, with a hook in their nose, in despair. God, I pray that they would turn to you, the God of their fathers. That they would find the joy and the life and the peace that you promised to us through your Son. God, help us to find our hope and our joy in you. Give us grace for repentance as is needed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.